usually around Memorial Day, we try to take a, a portion of the day and, and do something that focuses on the purpose of that day to remember the, the fallen dead that gave them their lives in service for our country uh, as the military. And uh, it's encouraging when you see uh, people show up, uh, but it seems like maybe with every year it seems like the crowds get a little smaller and they dwindle. And, you know, there's nothing exciting and entertaining about going to an event like that, stopping at a cemetery where the flags are, but that's not the purpose of it, is it? Uh, it's a somber event so that uh, we can uh, show a sign of respect, but there's something that's educational, something for our own soul's sake in times like that. Uh, you go to the, the World War II Memorial or the Vietnam Memorial, or as Becky and I had the opportunity when we were in Israel back in January to go to the, the Holocaust Memorial. Very sad, very uh, strong um, tones of suffering and pain and ridicule that uh, the Jewish people went through under Hitler's Nazi regime. And to see the garden out there and a special memorial for the children that were victims during the Holocaust as well. Uh, it was uh, important to take that in and to reflect upon that. And it brought a certain appreciation for the freedom, for the blessings that we have in our life. And I think that's part of the purpose of reading texts of Scripture like this. As we read, as I mentioned, this was penned by David, but, uh, and, and much of this probably had immediate reference to him, uh, but had, uh, maybe unbeknownst to him, greater significance and a future reference to the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, you know, who would come. Uh, references to the bulls of Bashan in verse 12. Those, those people during the time of David were smug and arrogant people and would taunt those that they th saw to be weaker. How well that depicts the crowds around the foot of the cross the day that Jesus hung there. And there were the taunts by those that saw themselves as strong, even yelling, if you be the Son of God, take yourself down from there. And, of course, even the reference to dogs having compassed me is most likely a reference to the way Gentiles were often referred to and the participation of the Gentile Roman soldiers who took part uh, in the actual bringing about the crucifixion and, again, very clearly piercing the hands and feet of our Lord. How can we not see this as a reference to our Savior in all of this. But I would like to draw our attention tonight to verse 14, because as I was reflecting on this for my own edification, I see in all of this references to physical suffering, but I feel like in verse 14 there is some, some indirect reference to the emotional anguish of our Lord. Uh, doesn't talk about him being disappointed, it doesn't talk about him being discouraged in so many terms, but the language, the, the 
the illustration, if you would, that is given here of what he's going through uh, feels very strongly to me in this verse to speak of the emotional anguish that our Lord went to. Now, let's remind ourselves that though Jesus was 100% God and had all the power given unto him, all authority was given unto him, both in heaven and in earth, yet he found himself as 100% man suffering on that Christ, on that cross, feeling every bit of the physical pain that you and I would feel as we were hanging there, and also going through all the mental and the emotional anguish that any human being would go through as well. So I think it's safe to say that there is a personal lowness of our Savior on the cross. And he's being very open to describe this even before the event happens through David. And he uses several descriptions to speak of a weakness. And, you know, no human being likes to feel weak. No human being likes to feel vulnerable. Uh, we like to, to feel safe and secure, able to take care of ourselves. That's, that's the nature of humanity. And yet, Jesus was never more vulnerable. Jesus was never in a, a weaker state in his humanity, speaking, than when he hung on the cross. Now, this isn't demeaning of our Lord nor is it in any way taking away from his absolute deity, even while he's hanging there on the cross. But Jesus, as a human, suffered on that cross, both physically and emotionally. And I think we would serve ourselves well to consider what the Word of God has for us in thinking about the emotional anguish that Jesus went through while he was accomplishing our atonement us being made one with the Father through his sacrifice. First of all, let's consider how the weakness that seemed to leave Jesus with an uncertainty in his body. There's a, a certain amount of uncertainty with regard to him physically, and that has an emotional effect on a person, doesn't it? He uses in verse 14, the description of being poured out like water. Now, water is a very interesting substance. Water, let's think about it in the opposite way. Let's talk about the powerfulness of water. Water can be very powerful, can it not? It can be very powerful, but usually it's when it's contained, and even more powerful when it's under pressure. We talk about hydraulics. It's amazing to me what you can see machinery do, but because it's using liquid under pressure in cylinders to be able to, to lift and move things that would take sometimes hundreds of men hours to accomplish. And yet it's good old water pretty much or some similar uh, substance. Uh, watch with great interest, you know, what... Um, uh, pressure washers can do. Just recently, if you haven't noticed, the pristine sidewalks, you know, around here, the hours that one of our deacons has gone through to, to pressure wash, you know, that there's that concrete that was all black and ugly, you know, with, with, with aging and time and the elements and, you know, just water, but water under pressure. Amazing what it could break free and what it could do. Early on in our marriage, Becky and I bought a waterbed, 
used from someone else. And uh, for a time, we enjoyed the way the mattress conformed our bodies and supported our bodies. It was, it was that substance of water, that liquid in the, in the bladder that made that possible. And even considering the, the power in the ocean of water, for instance, the riptides, you know, it's a, it's a sad story when we hear about someone who takes for granted the power of the ocean, and despite the warnings that are out there, uh, there seems to be almost every year or periodically there's someone that's swept out very rapidly because of water, because of water. So water isn't always weak. Water has some real power to it. But here it's being talked about in a form of weakness, isn't it? And that's, and that's the way water is pictured here, in a weak way. What's going on here? Well, water is being poured out. It's unconfined. It's not like it was in our waterbed. It's not like it was under pressure in the uh, pressure washer or in the hydraulic chamber or anything like that. This is water that's left to, to trickle away perhaps being soaked up into the sandy soil. The liquid has lost its support. And we can picture shallow puddles and even wet spots when we talk about water that is poured out. And that's what we ought to have in our mind, just the dissipation of water. In the Old Testament, the, there was a numerous number of offerings that were uh, given we're probably most acquainted with the burnt offering, you know, the animal sacrifice. But in addition to that, they had wave offerings where they would take sheaths of, of grain and barley and they would wave them before the Lord. Uh, but there was also what they would call a, a drink offering or a libation offering where the, the priest or the, uh, the giver of the offering would pour out either a, a wine, the fruit of the vine, or an oil, and it was a sign. That particular offering, as all offerings had some significance to them, was, was really a sign of absolute surrender, just pouring it out. You know, it would have been, it was, one thing that was true, it was impossible to recapture that once it was gone. It was irrevertible. And it had... Utterly gone to God's devotion was what was being pictured in all of that. And our Lord was also utterly yielded to the will of His Father. We know that. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he asked, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will but thine be done. So it was not about His own wishes, but the will of Him that sent Him. This idea of pouring being poured out like water does have an emotional significance to it. And in the Old Testament passage of Joshua 7, where we find the Israelites uh, facing the city of Ai. Remember, uh, they had just had a great victory at Jericho. Of course, there was secret sin in the camp because of Achan. But at the time, they didn't know it. And so uh, it says how the Israelites went up against Ai. Well, they were basically turning tail and running because the Lord was not with them. And in Joshua 7, 5, it says about the Israelites that their hearts had become as water. Again, the same analogy that is used there. And 
very possibly this might have been in the mind of David as the Lord was leading him to, to write this. Imagine how they must have felt as the people of Ai pursued them. What's going on here? We were once strong. We had just won the victory in Jericho. Why are we running? Why are we, why are we you know, the ones that are the victims here? They thought they were going to defeat the inhabitants of the land, but in this case they were in for a rude surprise. And the emotion is partly because of the surprise, partly because of the unexpected outcome. We may not ever say that, our, that we're poured out like water, but as we talk about this tonight, you might be able to think, yeah, there's been times that I have, I have felt that way, where I was feeling very strong one day and emotionally something, something happens and emotionally there's this amazing turn and I just felt like I didn't, have, I didn't have it in me. Just didn't have it in me. This is a weakness that initially appears to be something of being quite powerless. Wish I could do something about this, but I can't, someone might say. And Christ was in such a position when he was crucified because he yielded himself to the cross. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 50, verse 6, that he gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them who plucked off his hair. What a predicament to be in. What a horrible, embarrassing amount of suffering our Lord went through. It was his sovereign choice to be made so vulnerable. Think about that. He sovereignly chose to make himself vulnerable. And we need to understand how utterly unpleasant it was to our Lord. This, this was not easier for him, less painful for him, for him by virtue of the fact that he was the Son of God. In Gethsemane, Jesus said before going to the cross, knowing what he was going to face, in Matthew 26, 38, he says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. He hadn't experienced death yet, but in anticipation of it, he was already the day before under that excruciating emotional sorrow. Part of what was so excruciating about it was the fact of how demeaning it was. And Roman crucifixion was designed to be humiliating, demeaning. Crucifixion was about bringing shame on our Lord. And our Lord was one who willingly embraced that shame, and He did it for one reason, because He loved you and me. Our powerful Lord, our powerful Son of God, now is poured out like water in His emotions. There was still an emotional anguish that accompanied that suffering, and he experienced that so that we might be made one with our Heavenly Father, the Atonement. So let's remember the weakness of our Lord as he experienced all this uncertainty, being poured out, surrendering to it. You and I may be called to face uncertainty in our walk with the Lord, never to the degree of what Jesus went through, but how can we not embrace, how can we not surrender ourselves? 
How can we not pour ourselves out in absolute surrender, just as Jesus did, knowing that our Heavenly Father will not allow anything to come into our life that's not of His design? Yes, it seems unrestricted, but it is always under the restrictions of a good God above. There's another weakness or another aspect to the weakness here, and that is the weakness that seemed to leave him with an unreliable body. It says in the next phrase of verse 14, all my bones were out of joint. You know, what would our bodies be like if it wasn't for our skeletal, section, uh, our skeletal system, right? Uh, think about that, you know. You see these people that hit the gyms and they're, and they're, they're flexing, you know, and they have these impressive muscles and they're, they're ripped and they have all this. Hey, nobody is boasting about their bones, but take the bones out of the most muscular person and they're just a pile of jelly on the ground, aren't they? It's <laughs> just a blob, you know. Now, you might be a more attractive blob than I would be as a blob, but hey, a blob nonetheless. You know, really, bones are the framework for our rigidity, for our strength. Again, something that we sometimes take for granted. But you could have all the muscle mass in the world, but without good bones, those muscles would lose their potential. In fact, we even sometimes have a phrase that we will use when we're talking about maybe buying a, a house that's a fixer-upper. And it, you know, on the surface, aesthetically, it, it looks like it's a dump. But someone will look at it and say, mm, but it has good, what? Good bones, right? And they can see beyond the surface and understand, you know, that was made out of original, the old two-by-fours that actually measured two-by-four, you know? And uh, it's r really made very strong. And so that's why they don't just, sometimes demolish those things to the ground. When a bone is out of joint, and some of you may have experienced like a dislocated shoulder or a finger or something like that, you know, at that moment, does it matter that the, the spaghetti's boiling over on the stove if that was happening at the same time? It doesn't. <laughs> Nothing matters more to you at the, the moment than a bone being out of joint. It brings pain. In fact, it brings such pain that the entire anatomy of a body and its function is lost because of that bone being out of joint. You imagine trying to walk with your, your foot out of joint? You know, the body in its strength that once carried our Lord for miles as a pedestrian, as he walked and toured the, the countryside of Judea and Galilee and Samaria. These limbs that held him erect as he stood and he preached the word of God on the hillsides and in the boats. Now, he is experiencing them not broken. The Bible is very clear about no bones being broken, but there is a disjointedness. He's hanging on the, the, on the cross, and there's an excruciating pain. His, his lack of masculine posture was 
part of the humiliation of the crucifixion. The people that stood as spectators uh, thrived on, on watching the people that were being hung on the crosses lose their ability to hold themselves erect. The bones of Jesus, the joints of Jesus had never let him down before that we know of. Most of us can probably relate to the emotional difficulty it is. And there is an emotional difficulty when our bodies that have basically done what we ask them to do by merely thinking about it most of our lives, but there comes points in our life where we have an injury or because of aging, our bodies no longer function in the way they used to. And so there's often an emotional difficulty that is accompanied by our body's unreliability. You know, we say, I'm not as young as I used to be. Can't do those things. And it's not uncommon for men and women alike to struggle with a temptation to face an indignity at times that comes along with that. And this is not something that we would want to see in any fellow human experiencing, much less the Son of God. And here is our Lord going through this. The pain of it, but also a measure of embarrassment about this. But however, He did go through it. He did endure it. He did embrace that suffering. And He did take the emotional pangs with it that we might be made one with our Heavenly Father. Praise Jesus that He did. But then thirdly, we see that He says, My heart is like wax. And this reminds me that there is a weakness of Christ that seemed to leave Him unstable, if we can put it that way. Unstable in His humanity. What is it meant by a melted heart? A melted heart speaks of the loss of an emotional fortitude. And, and we often try to keep our emotions together at certain times. Uh, especially when we're around certain people. You know, we might be one way when we're in private, but often in public around other people. And remember the very public nature of Christ's crucifixion. And so a melted heart, Speaks of that loss of emotional fortitude. It was, if we could put it another way, it was tantamount to utter discouragement. You know, think about the most discouraging time you ever went through in your life. How you almost really just despaired. Describing the heart as wax shows that in ideal situations, our heart maintains its form. You know, we, we might even think of wax museums, how they'll, they'll take and they'll... They'll shape and craft that substance we call wax into to figures. But, you know, you don't want to, you know, start a, start a bonfire anywhere close to those. Why? Because they'll just liquefy. It's very susceptible to the heat. It'll lose its stability. So is our heart. Things like betrayals by other people. Disappointments of circumstances, scoffings by our enemies, ridicule, disrespect, 
on we could make our list. These are all factors that have a way of attacking the heart and melting it, making it unstable. And this is what our Lord experienced. All of those things. It then goes on to talk about, in further detail, not only was it like wax in the sense that it melted, but it melted in the midst of the bowels, he describes here. Sounds rather unpleasant. Remember in Hebrew poetry, such as the Psalms, the gut, the bowels, was often used to describe the seat of the emotions. And as I've mentioned before, we sometimes even talk about a, a gut feeling about something. And when we say that, aren't we talking about an emotional uh, idea, an emotional feeling that we have, an intuition we might have? For instance, in Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 4, the wife of Solomon refers to him coming to, uh, to her bedchamber, and she's not as responsive in beckoning him to come in. And she says, My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. There was, there was something in her, emotionally compassionate, this is my husband. He's coming to me. He wants to be with me is the idea. It is the seed of the emotions, and so it is with us as we talk about a broken heart, a joyous heart. We're not talking about our, that cardio muscle, so to speak. We're talking in an, in an analogy. And even when we draw the heart, we don't draw anything that we learned that it looked like in anatomy class. We do this little... Red heart that looks so pretty, doesn't it, you know? We'd probably fall over if someone sent us a heart out of an anatomy book, right? Why? Because we understand it's a, it's a figure, it's a representation. You know, this is a good reminder to us that our emotions are often out of our control. Our emotions are not always in our control. We can't necessarily turn them on or off. When sadness comes, we can't just say, I'm going to stop being sad. The Bible doesn't order us in that way. But even though we may not have complete control of how we feel or how the emotions are coming at us, that does not give us an excuse to behave out of control doesn't mean that we fall slaves to our emotions. We're called upon to live by faith at all times as people who have been justified by God. All times we're supposed to live by faith. And that is what enables us to live in harmony with the will of God, even in the most difficult of situations. It is very doubtful that our heart will ever be more unstable than it is described here of our Lord. But nonetheless, we, when we go through our times of distress and feel like our, our heart is like wax melting in our, the midst of our bowels, we need to be faithful. Why? Because we look at our Savior and say, He remained faithful. He didn't midway through all that was going on there say, You know what? I've had enough. This is just too much. I'm getting down from here. He didn't do that. He stayed. He remained faithful.
He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, The fire of almighty wrath would have consumed our souls forever in hell. It was no light work to bear as a substitute the heat of an anger so justly terrible. Dr. John Gill wisely observes, If the heart of Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, melted at it, what heart can endure or hands be strong when God deals with them in His wrath? You know, our hearts, our bodies, our lives, because of Jesus, because of the atonement, will never experience the eternal excruciating flames of hell and the lake of fire. There's not just the the pain of our body being cast into the lake of fire. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There was the emotional anguish that he had to endure of the thoughts of it could have been different had I chosen a different course in life. That had to plague him and does continue to plague him into eternity. So as we engage in the Lord's Supper tonight, perhaps our hearts can better engage a spirit of devotion knowing that there was an extreme, an extreme emotional exertion on Christ, on our precious Savior. So let's pause and let's thank our Savior, our Christ, for not only surrendering to the physical torments of the cross, but also the emotional trauma that went with it because He did it all for you and for me. Father in heaven, thank you for the plan it was designed from eternity past before man had ever been formed, much less sinned and transgressed. Lord, that you put in to your eternal decrees that Christ would come in the fullness of time and he would live a sinless life and he would go to Golgotha. He would go to the place of the skull. There would be those that think that they had won, that they had power over him. There would be the high priest and all who were loyal to him in this plan that they finally were able to silence this troublesome rabbi that made them look bad because of their unwillingness to have integrity in their true following of God. There would be those like Pilate who would think that they had power over Jesus either to release him or to sentence him. Lord, we know that all power is ultimately in your hands. And we know that Christ yielded. He volunteered. He submitted himself. And Lord, as we read passages like this and freshly consider what he did for us, Lord, may that give us a, a good sense of humility and appreciation, and gratitude. Because we need to see how undeserving we are. 
how utterly undeserving we are of this most precious gift by the cherished one of heaven and what he went through so that we might have life and we might have it more abundantly. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving our souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen.